What's becoming loud and clear is that most scientific studies are, well, unreliable. But there's help out there for scientists. We'll talk about that next on The Scope. Examining the latest research and telling you about the latest breakthroughs. The Science and Research Show is on The Scope. I'm talking with Daryl Schmick, research librarian at the Eccles Health Sciences Library at the University of Utah. So there are a number of reasons for what some people are calling a research reproducibility crisis, including fraud. But even scientists with the best intentions are at risk for doing sloppy work. And there are a lot of reasons for that as well. Um, One of the things that you're interested in looking at is um, data management. I really like this example of the postdoc who leaves the lab. So it's an was it an age old issue where, um, you know, you do a lot of work and it happens to be on your personal computer. It happens to be in a folder with poorly named files and you produce a bunch of research on behalf of the institution. But then once you're done, you obviously take your computer with you, right? And then head off to that, that next position. Now that's seemingly, um, innocuous, however, has a lot of implications the data that you produce on behalf of the university um, has ownership concerns. Is it the postdocs? Is it the universities? How can that lead to issues with research reproducibility? So if the postdoc takes all that data with uh, him or her and hasn't been saved into the department file or anything like that, um, how can you ensure that you have records of all the work that that uh, postdoc has done? Um, they could have taken just a little bit of it. They could have taken, you know, um, a substantial chunk of it. Um, and it really leaves the PI as well as the rest of the members of the lab uh, potentially at a significant disadvantage. There's a lot of knowledge that can be lost. Absolutely. So how? what are some ways to avoid that? We do teach a uh, research administration training class um, that talks about just the basic fundamentals of um, just good data management, which involve things like, where to properly back up your files and how often to do that. Um, was it myself and a couple of the librarians on campus have um, been working on a pilot for uh, electronic lab notebook technology. So if, say for instance, um, you happen to have, um, what is it, the, the perennial issue of lab members recording um, data in their own personal computers, um, because it's inconvenient to share it. Um, this sort of technology uh, allows for a lab to share um, in a uh, collaborative notebook technology, something that has um, all those questions that we're talking about answered. You know, like how frequently will, you be, will it be backed up? Is it going to be backed up in a you know trustworthy source? Right. Well, and not to mention that most lab notebooks that I've seen are... Mm-hmm. Kind of a disaster. <laughs> and, and Are you saying that scientists <laughs> don't uniformly have amazing handwriting? <laughs> exactly, right? We're all human. Right. Um, and even how the information is recorded um, is varies from person to person. So the idea is that this would become more standardized. You hit the nail on the head there. Any other approaches to make their do- data more accessible or reliable? Um, when we're talking about just optimizing the mechanics of anything in the research process, we want to ensure that we're doing it in a way that is not only um, accessible by us, because we can look at our notes, presumably, 
and be able to understand what we were saying, understand what we were recording, understand what we were encountering um, in that process. But to think about um, how um, the results that you're producing are going to be read by somebody else that's not in that same context. So if you're doing an experiment, um, you do it for you, but you also ensure that you're doing it in a way that if somebody wants to reproduce that experiment, they can do that. You've talked about ways about preserving information within a, a lab group, for example, a research mm -hmm. group. Um, what about um, sharing information more broadly with the, the scientific community? That's a great question, Julie. And it, uh, a lot of people think that um, all you are able to really produce is that end product, that finalized article. Um, and we don't realize um, many times that when we're doing um, experiments, when we're producing all this data that we're talking about, that that data could be good data. It could be um, good information and good intel for another scientist that's stumbling across that same issue. If you're embarking on um, answering a research question and you come across um, a data set that has already sought to ask that question, you find out that maybe those results weren't satisfactory enough to produce something into a finished article, that could potentially save you years um, in otherwise reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. um, so another thing that we like to talk about is the uh, idea of ensuring that researchers know that the data that they produce is of value and there's places that you can store that. So one example that comes to mind is Figshare. And Figshare is a repository that you can actually assign a DOI to the data sets mm. that you're uploading on there. Um, Figshare is all about open science. So they say, as long as you're making it public, I mean, you can upload it for free. So how can sharing data with the scientific community help with research reproducibility? There's a lot of news as of late um, in the way of that openness towards science where um, you know, folks on a peer review panel want to see the steps that you were able to take in order to draw the conclusions that you were able to take um, or able to make. And um, if they're able to go ahead and see that data right there from the start, uh, it answers all those questions. Um, it's when things like that data being withheld um, presents a larger problem, um, not only for you as author, but greater implications for science in general. Um, when we start to withhold that data, when we start to um, conceal uh, certain steps in that recipe towards what we ended up with that final product, uh, it leads towards a slippery slope of, um, was it not open science? And um, that, that closed scholarly environment, I think, is something that uh, is well worth fighting against. Where can people go to learn more about best data management practices? There's a lot of places. If you're embarking on a data management plan, uh, there's a great tool called DMP Tool. Um, that's dmptool.org. Um, and it'll take you through the steps of the processes of like, let's take you through the steps of the data management process by asking you like a, in a 20 questions format, um, what's this data going to be for, which agencies are going to be, um, what is it, seeing this data. Um, and um, it'll give you recommendations at the end from there. 
um, if you're at the University of Utah's campus, um, I'd encourage you to talk to me or one of our other fine staff at the Eccles Health Sciences Library. I'd be delighted to answer any questions regarding data management plans. Interesting, informative, and all in the name of better health. This is the Scope Health Sciences Radio.